Then last week we talked about, um, that we answered the question, what are we supposed to do while we wait? Are we supposed to just sit idly and not do anything? Or is there something that we're supposed to do while we wait? Today, I want to answer the flip side of that question. And that is this, what is God doing while you're waiting? What is God doing while you're waiting? And so that's going to be the question we're going to look at. Here's the passage that we have referenced over the first three weeks of the series or over the first two weeks and then again today. And it's found in Isaiah 40, 31. And here's what it says. It says, but they who what? All right, uh, that was about 30%. That's okay. Uh, but I think we can all get do this together. One big, loud, together voice. Here we go. But those who wait uh, for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. And so as we've already discussed in previous weeks, none of us, we don't enjoy waiting. I mean, we don't enjoy the waiting process. No one says, man, you know what? I just love to wait so much. I love DMV. I love, you know, sitting in uh, offices and just waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. No one, no one ever says that. And yet, according to scripture, there is a benefit. If we look at what Isaiah said, there's a benefit in us for waiting. And so when we read scripture over and over again, it, it talks about this whole waiting process and trusting God and, and having patience. And so we often find ourselves sitting right in the middle of the waiting game. You find yourself there. I find myself there on numerous occasions. So waiting on God usually means this. It usually means hanging on until God changes our circumstances, be they relational, be they financial, be they physical or even spiritual, that we're usually waiting on God until he changes our circumstances. And here's the trouble. The trouble is this, that God seldom seems to be in a hurry, does he? I mean, it's like when we want our answer, when we want our solution, when we want the thing to come to fruition, we sit there and we go, God, where are you? Why are you taking so long? Any of you ever get frustrated? Don't make eye contact. But do any of you ever get frustrated when someone tells you that, hey, I'm going to the store, I'll be right back? And, and you're sitting in the parking lot of Hobby Lobby, sweating to death. I'm just going in for one thing. Like we don't, like none of us ever likes to wait. And, and people say, okay, well, I'll be right back or I'll be right there. You ever get a text from somebody and you're like, hey, where are you at? You know, we're waiting on you. And they're like, I'm five minutes up the road knowing that they're still in Valdosta. We don't like to wait. And so we do that. So we're like, okay, I'm really not that far away. I'm, I'm getting close. I'm really close. I'll be there in just a second. And being there in just a second, we know is not actually reality. We don't like to wait. And so we live in this season. We live in these waiting stages and we don't like it. And here again is the problem. The problem is, is when we're waiting on God, God almost never shows up when we want him to, right? Seldom does God ever seem in a hurry at all whatsoever. Instead, God allows our circumstances to stay the same and sometimes not even stay the same. Sometimes God allows our circumstances to worsen. Things get a little bit harder. Things get a little bit more difficult. Things get a little bit more strenuous. We get a little bit more anxious and he allows this to happen sometimes. And, and, and here's what we want. Sometimes while he's having us wait, maybe it's that he's waiting on us to change. So maybe our problem with waiting is that we don't want to have to change whatever it is inside of us that's creating the angst. Waiting on God usually means waiting until, he, again, he changes the circumstances. And then God, maybe he waits for us to change. So both God and us 
appear to be in this sort of like standoff. Like we're waiting on God and maybe, maybe, maybe God's waiting on you. And so what is the wait about? What are we waiting for? And what is God doing while we're waiting? We want God to change our situations. We want God to change the positions that we find ourselves in. We want God to change. We, we want, God wants us to change in them too. So while we're waiting, what is God doing? Because we want relief. We want God, and, and we want relief, but God wants repentance. Because we're impatiently waiting on God. We're expecting, here, here's our problem. Every one of us thinks the world revolves around us. God, you should answer my prayer right now. And because uh, of the situation that I find myself in, God, you should just step in when I'm asking you to step in. The problem is, is that you know that every decision has a ripple effect. It has a domino effect. Every decision that God makes on your behalf also impacts other people. And so God, God is sitting there and we want relief and God's going, I just want repentance. I want you to acknowledge that I'm God and you're not. We want happiness and God wants holiness. We want pleasure and God wants our piety. It's like a game of, um, like our waiting game seems like a game of ping pong. We hit it and he hits it back. We hit it and he hits it back. You know what I mean? Like it's a game of tug of war. We're pulling and he's pulling. Or how many of you remember, I don't even know, do they play this in elementary school anymore? How many of you ever played the, the game red light, green light? Not enough of you. Maybe we should go outside this afternoon and just kind of continue this whole D now thing and we'll all play a good game of red light, green light. All right. So red light, green light. And it's, it's, it's like, we feel like right when we get some traction and we're moving forward, God turns around and says, red light. And that's how our life feels. That's how when you're in the waiting game, when you're in this season of waiting and you're waiting on God to give you an answer, that's how it feels, that God is yelling green light. And in the end, if we really knew the big picture, like if we could just pull back, and I think this, is, this would help us if we could, but have you ever watched a movie the first time you watched it like the end came, like Sixth Sense, if you ever saw that movie. Like the end came and you're like, <gasps> the second time you watched it, you're like, this is so dumb. Like, I know it's going to happen. Like, so the excitement of the end of the movie has gone. But as you watch it, the second time, you pick up on all these little details that you never saw before. Why? Because you know how it's going to end. You know where this is going. Wouldn't it be amazing if God could just pull us back and give us a 32,000 foot view of our life so that we could see the beginning and the end and you could see how all the details play into God's greater plan for you? That would be fantastic. The problem is, is he doesn't. What he asks us to do is he asks us to trust him in the midst of the waiting. See, it's often our pain that blinds us to the perspective See, in the end, if we really knew the big picture, we too would want what God wants for us. If you knew the plans that God had for you, if you really trusted the plans that God had for you, you would be okay with the waiting because you would know that God has a perfect and good plan for your life. And while the waiting seems painful, there should almost be an anticipation and an excitement about what is eventually gonna come because we, we have to believe that the truth of scripture Man, it's always true. It's not just true in certain seasons. It's always true. For God, you know, if, if we look at Romans 8, 28, that God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, then we have to trust the purpose part of that. And we have to be willing to be patient and wait while God is working out the details. And we're gonna see that 
here in a few minutes in Joseph's life. But again, it's just that our pain often blinds us to the perspective of what God's doing, that there is a bigger plan because all we can see is right now. I don't know about you, but when I'm in pain, I just want the pain to go away. I remember, um, I think I've shared this story with you before. In November of 2013, uh, I'm, I'm in the house. I fall, I collapsed, felt like I had been shot, had no idea what it was. I told him, rush me to the emergency room. It was the day, if you guys remember this, for those of you who are football fans, it was the day of the kick six. Sorry, Bama fans, if you're in here. And I'm in the emergency room as that whole thing's happening. And I finally make my way back there. And the nurse comes in and she's like, hey, what's going on? Tell me what happened. And I, so I, I described the details. She said, I'll be right back. She comes back. She's got a shot of morphine. She hits me. And it was like, <laughs> that's the kind of relief I want right there. I mean, it was immediate. I had a kidney stone. Don't ever want another one of those. Everybody who's had one should be saying amen right now. See, we only see, when, when we're waiting on God, we don't see the purpose. We just see the pain. But God has a greater plan. God has a greater purpose. We only see the delay. God sees the design for the delay. You guys have heard stories before. A lot of them came out. Uh, September 11th, 2001, some like, hey, I was running late, had, forgot my whatever back at the apartment, ran back to the apartment. And because of that, I was late to work. And because I was late to work, I wasn't in the World Trade Center when it happened. We've heard those stories. You may have stories very similar that there was a delay in your life that created a, a really good event or a good opportunity for you. And we all experience those. But yet when the next delay comes, we get impatient. We get frustrated because we don't like to wait. When we see the delay, God sees the design behind the delay. And although we cannot understand why the light is red or why we, why we understand that the light is there, we do know that the red light remains and what it means. It means wait. For this reason, we've been studying through the uh, life of Joseph in the book of Genesis over the last couple of weeks. And uh, the story of Joseph reveals better than most for, for any of us who's ever studied it. Or if you haven't studied it, I want to encourage you to, to kind of pull your Bible out, do it on your own, just kind of read through the whole, the whole story there. But Joseph's story reveals better than most on how to wait on God. But while Joseph shows us how, it's important to remember that the theme of the story of Genesis, <clears throat> you pull back and you look at the entire book of Genesis, the entire book of Genesis, and particularly even through Joseph's life, the story in Genesis is not waiting on God. The story of Genesis is the providence of God. So what is the providence? I mean, we talk about these words all the time. We see them in scripture. We, we hear them when we talk about them in church. So what is providence? Providence is a word that you may have heard before, but what does it mean? Providence is his wise, we got it up there for you, his wise and purpose, purposeful power and right to do all that he decides to do. The providence of God is his wise and purposeful power and right to do all that he decides to do. It's his right. It's his purpose. And he has the power and the wisdom to pull it off. It's not our decision. We, sometimes I, I know we wish we could make the decisions for him. But his providence, the providence of God, the story of Genesis, really the story of all of Scripture is about this providence of God. God's providence in his, is his wise and purposeful power and right to do all that he decides to do. Look at Job 42.2. If, uh, if you're not familiar with Job, Job had a really, he had everything. 
I mean, at the beginning of the story of Job, he's, he's got everything. He's got a great family. He's got great wealth. He, he has it going on. I mean, Job is doing really well. God strips it all away. He loses his family, his wife, his children. He loses everything. His, he loses all of his wealth. I mean, he loses his own health. And at the end of Job, at the end of the book of Job, it says the latter days of Job were better than the former. But look at Job 42.2, and here's what Job says about all of that stuff that happened to him. And he waited, and he, his wait was very, very painful. He says, I know that you can do all things. He's talking about God. I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. It's not very helpful to nail down the meaning of a word like providence by picking apart its etymology, the history uh, of its pieces. But uh, it, it's made of, of kind of two Latin words, pro, really vide is what we're going to put up on the board for you or up on the screen. It can mean to foresee or to see forward or see toward. And we have an idiom in English. We say this, we say, see to it. Uh, Pastor Matthew says a lot, uh, you know, he's Pastor Matthew's our maintenance guy around here. If I go, hey, Pastor Matthew, we've got an issue with a doorknob or a door lock, or we've got a, an issue with a wall. He says, I'll see to it. That's, that's kind of his thing. And, and this word in this, this word is in Providence. The, it, it literally means to see to it, take the steps to make sure that it happens. And it's one of the most helpful paraphrases of God's acts of providence. It is God seeing to everything. Absolutely everything that needs to be done to bring about his purposes, God will see to it. He's going to see that it happens. He's going to make sure that it happens. For every purpose in your life, every purpose in my life, he's going to see that it happens. Look in Isaiah 46.10. This is what it says. Uh, I declare at the end from the beginning and from ancient times to things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. In other words, I will see to it. God says that. That is his promise. I will see to it. I will see to it. I will provide. I will provide. I will see that everything works together for the goals that I have created and I have established for the world. So God is sovereign. That's great. Fantastic. I know that that probably doesn't comfort a lot of you. So what? So the fact that God's sovereign, I'm not. God's, he has providence over his creation. That's, how, that's his attribute, not ours, right? We don't have the luxury of eternity yet. We're stuck in time and space, with all of its limitations, with all of its failings. So how do we apply God's sovereignty tomorrow morning when we wake up and go to work? How do you apply God's sovereignty in the everyday dealings of your life? How do you apply his sovereignty in your job? How do you apply his sovereignty or his providence in your school? How do you apply all of these things in your marriage? How do you apply those things? How do we do that? The application of sovereignty shows itself in the life of the believer in a number of ways. It requires more than just pondering. It requires more than us just thinking about it. It even means more than just worshiping God when he's in control, when you don't understand it. It even means more than that. 
Like we come in here sometimes and we're waiting on God and we're in these seasons and sometimes worshiping is just a little harder because we're waiting on God to show up. And while we're waiting on God to show up, we're questioning God's goodness and all of it. God, do you care? God, do you know? Do you, what are you doing up there? What, what, what are you waiting for? Why are you not stepping into my situation? And so worship, when we step in on a Sunday morning, often becomes a little more difficult because we're waiting on God and we're questioning God while we wait. I'm convinced that the primary way that we apply God's providence to our lives is by a word that we don't like. How we apply God's providence in our life is by waiting. That's how we do it. So if we apply God's providence to our lives by waiting, what is God doing while we're waiting? Is he just sitting up there idly standing by? Maybe he's, maybe he's forgotten. Maybe God's just sitting up there and he's, you know, he's, I don't know, maybe he's, he's not watching Georgia football, I can tell you that. What's God doing while he's waiting? I mean, do you ever think that God, I, sometimes I just wonder, like I get frustrated because I'm not very patient. I don't like to wait on many things. And sometimes I just wonder, is God sitting up there like, hey, Jesus, come over, come over, come over. Holy Spirit, come over. You see what I'm doing down there? Like he's waiting. Do you, what do you think the over under is? 10 years? And Jesus pipes in and he says, no, no, no. I don't think they could wait 10 days. So maybe God goes, hey, over-unders, 10 months. Anybody want in? Angels, y'all went on on this? Come on, let's, let's see how long it is before he cracks. Is that what we feel like God's doing? Do you feel like God's just sitting up there waiting for you to lose your ever-loving mind before he acts? What is he doing? What is God doing while we're waiting? Does he care? Is he just idle? Is he ignoring your call? Is he putting you on hold while you're hurting? I mean, what is God doing while you're waiting? What is he doing while we're all waiting? Before we pick up in Genesis 46, um, if we get there, let me just provide a little bit of context. Joseph, if you're not familiar with his story, Joseph is one of 12 kids. He's one of 12 boys by a man named Jacob. Uh, his father had already declared him the favorite because he gave him a coat of many colors. It's a beautiful, elaborate coat. I mean, this thing was nice. It was made specifically for Joseph, and this thing just had lots and lots of colors to it. And because he was the favorite, he got the coat, and every time he wore the coat, the brother said, see, it just makes me angry. Dad's playing favorites. He's got his favorite kid. And so the brothers hated him for that. And then Joseph has these dreams. And in his dreams that we talked about in previous sessions, in these dreams, his father, in these dreams, in these dreams he's telling his brothers that your sheaves will bow down to my sheaves. There's going to come a day that you are all going to have to bow down. That made them more furious. So in the, in the moment that they see everybody, uh, that Joseph is revealing his dreams, in that moment, there's a frustration that builds up with his brothers. And the brothers are like, we just hate him even more now. So one day the father says, Joseph, I need you to go out and check on your brothers. They're out pasturing the sheep. So Joseph goes. When they see him coming, they throw him into a pit. When they throw him into the pit, they're planning on killing him. Then, of course, after they decide not to kill him, what are they going to do? They decide, you know what? Here comes some traders. We'll sell him. Uh, they're slave traders. We'll sell him to, to them and then Joseph will become a slave, and then we won't have to worry about having his blood on our hands. 
this caused anger, all of this anger and business uh, bitterness from his brothers, from the um, from the coat of many colors to uh, you know him revealing the dream. All of these things just led up to this. So at 17 years old, this happens to Joseph. He's sold into slavery. Look in Genesis 39. So Joseph from being sold into slavery, ends up in a guy named Potiphar's house. Now, Potiphar is the chief guard or the chief captain of, of the uh, Pharaoh's guard in Egypt at the time. And so he's going to become a house servant. And I want you to look at what it says in Genesis 39, 1 through 4. Now, Joseph had been brought down to Egypt and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had, brought, had bought him from the uh, Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. Look at verse 2. What are those first five words? Okay, can we all agree that being sold into slavery is not a good thing, right? But it says, in the midst of that, the Lord was with Joseph and he became, by the way, let me just say this. God is still with you while you wait. See, we feel like when we're waiting that God is absent, that if God were here, he would do something. That if God were with me, he would make this go away. If God were with me, he would give me a solution. I just need you to know that while you're waiting, God is still with you. Joseph is a slave in the house of an Egyptian officer. And it says the Lord was with Joseph. And he became a successful man. And he was in the house of this Egyptian master. Verse 3, his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. All right, so if you go back to the day that Joseph's in the pit, when his brothers threw him in there and they're selling him, again, the, the day that he's being led away by a group of Ishmaelites to be sold as a slave, that would be a bad day. That would qualify. So here it is, Joseph's now in Potiphar's house. He's a slave in this man's home, but it says that God blessed everything that he did and everything that he touched became successful. So Potiphar says, hey, you're the head of my household. Like you are in charge of everything. So while things were bad, obviously Joseph's not where he wanted to be. God was still with Joseph and things were still, at least on that day, the day he got the promotion, it was a better day. So while in prison, Joseph... Uh, or, or while he's in Potiphar's house, um, Potiphar's wife hits on him. Joseph declines. And because she's mad that he declines her advances, uh, she says, hey, he came on to me. She sells him out to, um, she steals his coat, sells him out. Joseph ends up in prison. That's a bad day. So it went from being, okay, things are getting better to suddenly things are getting worse. And by the way, this, this whole event didn't happen just like one day after another. I mean, this is spread out over time. So now Joseph finds himself in prison. Um, look in Genesis 39, 20 through 21. And Joseph's master took him, this is Potiphar, and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. Look at verse 21. All right, but what are the next five words? The Lord was with Joseph and showed him what steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. So we were sold into, we were thrown into a pit, sold into slavery, put in slavery by Potiphar's, in Potiphar's house, then sold out by his wife. That got me thrown into prison. While I'm in prison though, God is still with me. This is Joseph's story. That God is still with him. And he found favor. 
in the sight of the keeper of the prison. As bad as things could be, God is still with him. So you, at least for Joseph, he's still comforted in the moment and in the, in, in the moments of his waiting. So while in prison, Joseph interprets the dreams of two people who were officers or high-ranking officials for, for Pharaoh. And because of his accurate interpretation of the dream, they're like, hey, this is good because his interpretation was, you're going to get out. One of you is going to die, so it's not so good for one of you. But the other one of you, you're going to get out. You're going to be restored back to your position. And this is going to come to pass. So then he says, the only thing that I ask is when you get out and all is good for you again, that you would restore me to, or that you would tell Pharaoh about me. So, Chief Cupbearer gets out, knowing the dream, knowing that the vision was true. And when he gets out, it says that he forgot about Joseph. And that's how a lot of us feel. When God isn't answering, when God's not stepping in, a lot of us, we get into that place where we feel like, you know what, God's just forgotten about me. And then it says this, two years later, this is crazy, right? Two years later. So two years after the chief cupbearer gets out, Pharaoh would have a dream and he would have no one to interpret it for him. Like no one could understand his vision. And then suddenly the, the chief cupbearer was like, oh, you know what? There was this guy and he's in prison and he interpreted a dream for me and it came to be true. So they pull him out and Genesis 41, chapter 14, it says, then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph and they quickly brought him where? Out of the what? Look at the full circle in the context of Genesis here. His brothers, when they betrayed him, they put him in the what? Pit. Now, Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world at the time, is calling Joseph out of the what? Pit. So it's like, okay, this is the beginning of the uh, fulfillment of God's vision that he had given to Joseph. So Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dream and look at what happens next. Genesis 41, 38 through 43. And Pharaoh said to his servants... So this is after he had interpreted the dream, all this stuff's coming to pass. Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, watch this, this is so amazing. Now remember, the vision that he gave to his brothers that all your sheaves will bow down to my sheaves. Like one day you're all gonna bow down to me. And that's what they hated him for. Even his own dad didn't understand it. And here's the, here's the vision. The Pharaoh said, or this is the, the culmination of the vision that he had given him. Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none discerning and as wise as you are. You shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards, only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and he put it on Joseph's hands and he clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot and they called out before him, bow the knee. Thus, he set him over all the land of Egypt. Listen, this is the most powerful place on earth. And Pharaoh is the most powerful man on earth at that time. And he is saying, Joseph, the only thing that I got on you is the title Pharaoh and the throne. Everything else is in charge under your command. So what's God doing while you're waiting? Joseph waited 22 years for God's plan to be fulfilled in his life. What was God doing? 
Another example of waiting in Scripture. We'll wrap up with this. We have in our Bible an Old Testament and a... You guys are sharp, man. We have an Old Testament and a New Testament. From the time of the closing of the Old Testament to the announcement, if you will, of Jesus' birth in the New Testament, there is a 400-year silence from God. Now, I know some of you have waited a while, but the fact that you're here tells me you have not waited 400 years. What's God doing? What was he doing while, he, while all these people were waiting, particularly the nation of Israel? They're waiting on a Messiah. They're waiting on a promise to become fulfilled. What is God doing while the waiting is occurring? At the close of the Old Testament, here's what he's doing. So let me describe it to you. At the close of the Old Testament, the nation that was the power nation at the time, the one that was kind of ruling and reigning over everything was a nation called Persia. The Persian Empire was big and it was bad. And the people of Israel were in captivity. Uh, they, were, they didn't even have their own, I mean, they had been overthrown. Their whole kingdom had been overthrown. So the nation of Persia is um, the empire and they would reign for a while until... A little ways into this thing, there's another nation that would conquer the Persians. The nation was led by a guy named Alexander the Great. It's the Greek Empire. When he becomes the the emperor and the Greek Empire is like in full scale, something happens that's just amazing and incredible during this transition time of the 400 years of silence between the Testaments. The entire known world at that time would practically become Greek speaking. So there's now one common language that everybody can at least communicate somewhat. Then after the the Greeks have their little run in their reign, there's another empire that comes in and takes over and it's the Romans. The Romans would come in and they would overthrow the Greeks. And while there's a Greek speaking language, one of the things that the Romans begin to do is they, uh, they, they put into place this, things called, this thing called the Pax Romana, which means the peace of Rome. They want to they create justice. They want to create, um, create a, a civilization of people where everybody can operate and everybody can be safe and live under the protection of the Roman Empire. And while they're doing this, what they, one of the other things that they did is they created the very first really intricate road system in the world. They started creating roads that were smooth to travel, that would make uh, travel easier. It would expedite the ability for people to go from one place to another, one city to another. And not only that, they policed the roadways because if you traveled the roads before this, uh, there were always uh, there were always these you know these thieves, these robbers along the roads. And when people would try to travel, they would get their they would get their lives taken possibly, but at least their stuff stolen. And so the Roman Empire comes in and says, hey, we're going to establish an easier way to travel. We're going to create roads, and then we're going to police the roads to make sure all of the burglars and thieves aren't out there stealing from people. So now for the first time, people feel not only safe to travel, but kind of encouraged to travel. So look at what we have. See, prior to, or in the Old Testament, there's a bunch of different languages, and a lot of the people didn't speak the same language. Now, during the Greek Empire, there's one language that really helps everybody communicate to all the other groups pretty well. And now, because of the Romans, there's a road system where if you wanted to tell somebody something in a language that everyone understood, that no matter what city you went to, they could understand what you're saying. Now, there's a way that you can travel safely and get there to deliver a message well, what message would be so important 
that God would spend 400 years placing people into position so that a language could be established and roads could be established that people could go out. The message that's so important, it's called the gospel. And so listen to this, Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. But when the, what is, what are those, what does that say in the yellow? Paul says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Watch this, this is beautiful. To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. What's God doing while you're waiting? God is up to something, isn't he? That word fullness of time, it's pleroma chronic. That's the, the Greek for it. And it means complete fullness of a uh, full measure or the perfect time. It's kind of like pregnancy. When you go to the doctor and you find out, for the ladies, when you go to the doctor and you find out that you're with child, they say, hey, here is your due date. And you're going to wait but there is a waiting with expectancy. There is a waiting that, hey, there is a, there is a time coming when the, right, when the time is ready for a healthy pregnancy. When the time has come, the baby arrives. The mother's body begins to have contractions. She births a new life into the world. Paul is saying, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. So what is God doing while we're waiting? God has a perfect plan. And God has perfect timing. God has a perfect plan. You need to convince yourself of that. Remind yourself of that. He has a perfect plan. His, his plan is not bad. It has not been changed. It has not been rerouted. There's no one, on the, there's no one in the universe powerful enough to change God's plan. God has a perfect plan and he has perfect timing. While you are waiting, God is working. While you are waiting, God is working. His delay does not equal his denial in your life. So when you feel like, God, where are you at? Why aren't you showing up? Why aren't you stepping in right here? His delay is not his denial, though it may be. But it doesn't necessarily mean his denial. But what it may be the denial to what you want, but it's not a denial to the plan that he has for your life. God's delaying does not necessarily mean his denial. While you're waiting, God is working. What feels like a setback for you might really just be the setup that God has to show you and to demonstrate for you what his plan is for your life. And here's another question that we have to ask ourselves, and I'll end with this. What if, what if, the God you're waiting for, what if he's waiting for you? You're going, God, where are you at? And God's going, I'm right here. I'm waiting for you to take that step of faith that you know you've been called to. What if the God you're waiting for is simply just waiting for you.